Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Welcome to Masterclass Theology. I'm Big Rev. And I'm Professor D. We are concluding the book of 1 Thessalonians today. And if you missed our last session, it was just recorded not too long ago. Press pause, go back in, go back in the episode list and, and find 1 Thessalonians chapters 1, 2, and 3. We covered three chapters last time. And it was one of our shortest podcasts to date. It was, it was pretty amazing. So today we're going to finish... Yeah, today we're going to finish 1 Thessalonians, so we're going to be in chapters 4 and 5. Let me open up in a word of prayer. God, thank you for this opportunity to, to, open, to open up your word and to be able to study it. And we just pray, Lord, that today would be good and that we would be challenged and that we would learn what we need to learn and that we can look at the future and that we can see and have faith in you and trust in you no matter what befalls us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So... Uh, we're going to be in chapter four for starters, of course. And so it begins with one to eight. Finally, then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you, for you know what instructions we gave you. Through the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whatever whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Who gives us, who gives his Holy Spirit to you? Well, Professor D, in verses one and two, Paul speaks of biblical teaching. What, what, what does he tell us? How does he revere biblical teaching? What does he tell us about just the process of learning from God's word? That's funny. You're saying revere and Paul, and I'm thinking Paul Revere there for a second. Um, but, but seriously, uh, nice the key point that, that Paul is making here is that the more that that more than knowing it than being acquainted with biblical teaching, it, what, it, what it is, that what we need to do is we need to be living it out. Paul uses his oft-used term of, of walking or walk, which is a synonym for how we live and conduct ourselves. And we are to live in obedience to scripture to please God. He, he also says that, that we are to do it more and more. And, and that's basically to, to stress that this is something that's ongoing and we, we continuously do it. We don't let up on this. Yeah, I mean, if you really think about it, his original audience was in this unique position where scripture was being written. And, mm -hmm. and so they didn't have they didn't have a lot of these things that we have. And so really, I, we realize that the scripture is not written to us, but it is preserved for us. We get it. And so it really hits us hard because we have the scripture. They were actually living in that time where scripture was in a sense, coming alive and being produced in this communication. And so, yeah, so Paul is saying, hey, what I'm receiving from Jesus, I'm giving it to you. 
and you then know how to walk and what, what you're receiving from us. And, and, and it looks like Paul's talking about, he's referencing maybe some of the sermons he gave them when he was with them. I mean, yeah. the, the original teachings he gave them that was before this letter, because this letter is kind of historical. He's looking back. And so, so, so yeah, we, we, we revere God's word as, as the very word of God. And as it's from the Lord Jesus himself. And wow. So it's, this is, there's, there's a plan here in place. So verses three to six, Paul's bringing up an ethical concern. So what seems to be going on with this uh, church in Thessalonica, the big ethical moral issue that they were dealing with? Yeah, I think um, a defining feature or, or characteristic of, of pagan Gentile cultures, of which the Thessalonians were steeped very well in, was the living in all forms of sexual promiscuity. You know, uh, Paul wanted to make sure that as they felt the pressures of the non of their non-Christian neighbors around them, it was the life that they used to lead, that they wouldn't revert to their pre-Christian default. He even goes as far as mm. to remind them that this is one of the reasons for why God's wrath is coming in the first place. Right. Yeah, I like that, the, 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 their default mode. You know, that reminds, reminds us of, of Ephesians chapter two, because we were once dead in our sins. And that our default mode was was the the desires of the flesh and the self. So we're not surprised when Jesus tells us to not deny ourselves. In verses seven to eight of this section, Paul drives the point home. How does he do so? Well, P Paul flat out states that God has called us to holiness, which mm -hmm. besides meaning more or moral purity, it means to be separate from the godless culture around. I mean, the way Jesus put it. We are in the world, but we are not of it anymore. We used to be part of it, but we're not part of it anymore. We're still in it, though. And, and to disregard God's holiness calling is, is tantamount to rejecting God, the Holy Spirit. Trust me, you don't want to do that. Yeah, this is like make where, where, where Paul brings up the word calling. Mm -hmm. like God didn't call you for that. And so... For anyone who says, well, this is just my cross to bear. This is my struggle. No, that, that's not your calling in Christ to, 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 to be in this category. Yeah. You, you, you are to, to put in some good work and you are to trust God and you are to, I mean, yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's things here you can't just shift in neutral and go, well, this is how God made called you to a, a, a higher purpose. Mm -hmm. you, you haven't been called to impurity, but to holiness. I mean, it's like Paul is just laying his cards out there. So for any of our listeners who are struggling with this, and I, I, I struggled, I have struggled in my past mightily with this sin, but at no point can I say, oh, this is just my cross to bear. No, no, no. I have not been called to that. I have been called to holiness. There's a huge difference there. All right. So that's our first section. And, you know, thank you, Professor D, for helping us understand that. So now we go to verses 9 to 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So what does he mean here? They were, he's like, you, because you were taught by God in verses 9 to 10. What's he talking about there, Mick? So all believers are essentially taught by God when they receive the gospel and all scripture instruction that they receive. 
to, to the extent that, that we are faithful in teaching God's word, that is essentially being taught by God. Um, it, is, it is the Holy Spirit working within us with the revealed Bible for us. I mean, and in their time, it was these letters that they were receiving from Paul and even the existing Old Testament. Right. So, I mean, if you, if you think about it, because I mean, like, 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 like we, we mentioned, they were in this unique time where I, I like how you brought up last week where these Thessalonian letters were some of the earlier letters of Paul. And so they didn't have, you know, many of the other epistles to draw upon. There might, might have been passed around. Mm-hmm. So you could even argue that these, might, the, these Thessalonian letters even predated the, the existence of the Gospels in yeah. terms of the Republic, especially like a John. And so yeah. in terms of their publication, they may not have had anything but the Old Testament and how Paul unpacked the Old Testament. Yeah. But if you take this at face value, you don't need to be taught to love your brother because God's already taught you. Well, at the minimum, we have commandment number two in Leviticus, the idea of love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. At the minimum, they had that. That's right. that has been around for hundreds of years at that point. And so at the, and at the minimum, you've got that. And then if, if all and the other apostles preaching the words of Christ, Jesus was very clear, love one another. And so it's whether or not it was existing in the gospel form in terms of the, the, the written word, yet they had that, those teachings and those sermons that were being passed around and being preached. And so God has already spoken mightily on this issue. They did not need Paul to tell them. Right. It's, and I'm going to go just for a cool moment there. Thing. Yeah, and another thing worth noting that I just thought about right now, too, is that even Gentiles, you could say, well, you know, the Old Testament was, was in Hebrew and Aramaic. No, I mean, by the time that this is being taught and, and, and shared, there were copies of the best-selling Septuagint around. Mm. So even non-Jewish people were interested in the Septuagint. Mm. That's why they had it in Greek, because they loved the Bible, the first translation of the Bible. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the vaunted brain of Professor D at work. <laughs> I, I, improvisational glory there. Wonderful. So, so in verses 11 to 12 here, uh, it, Paul pictures in a general sense the life of the believer. How does he do so? Well, Christians are to live lives that are drama free. I think that's, in other words, you got to be that kind of person that you're not going to be caught dead in the Jerry Springer show as part of its audience, okay? Um, we don't we want don't. to live in a way that interferes with the witness of, of the gospel in our lives. And, and that's very important. We don't want to do anything that is detrimental to the gospel. First of all, nothing can stop the gospel, but we don't want to contribute to its detriment, you know, anyways. And as Paul would go on to say in Colossians 3, everything we think, say, and do must be in the service of the gospel. Uh, to mind your own affairs is that we can't fix ourselves, let alone others so so what are we to do we are to focus on god and on him removing the logs in our own eyes um and paul also stresses the importance of honest employment you know because as as he explained earlier on on in this letter we're not to burden others but instead to honor god with our work um this serves as a great witness to those who are not saved work is a great witnessing opportunity even just in the way you work Mm. Amen. Now, we, we promised last time that the, the, the book of 1 Thessalonians was going to give us some end times theology. So we, we've already been given some great practical theology here. 
in terms of the Christian life and, you know, how, how we're taught by God and the, the very, very essential, essential material here. But chapter four of First Thessalonians, the, the, the average Christian has thought about the, the book of First Thessalonians more than many other books of the Bible. And it's because, because of the very theological concept of the rapture. And the rapture is going to take place in, these, in this next section. Okay, and not, not literally take place, but it, we're going to see it in the text here. It's really the only place in the Bible where it exists. And so I want you to pay attention, listener, see if you can hear it. I'm going to read now verses 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have, who, or excuse me, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now here we go. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Kind of a pivotal section there, Mick. All right, so we start start with verse 13. Verse 13 is end timesy, but it's a little bit more with a focus on now. So it speaks of grieving and hope and why would that give perspective to a christian funeral or to put it a different way make why why is is the funeral of a christian different with perspective than any other type of funeral well we don't we, grieve as the world does because because the world grieves without any hope uh this isn't to say that we don't grieve whatsoever at all we saw in john 11 at, Je- at lazarus's funeral that jesus himself wept um, and the Bible also teaches us to mourn with those who mourn. So th- it's not to say that we don't mourn at all or we don't grieve at all. It's just that we're just we still have a we have a hope, a very real living hope. The key here is that we don't mourn like we don't have it. We believe in the resurrection. Um, we mourn at a sense of loss that that we won't see that person until we join them in eternity or at Christ's return, which especially in our lifetime, now 2,000 years later from when this was written, it, it is more real today than it was back when. Yeah, it's, it's what sets a Christian funeral apart from, from a non-Christian funeral, yeah. where it's, we, 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 we can have solace that though we're grieving, we're grieving with hope instead of grieving with despair. Yep. There's something to be said about that. It's one, it's one of the blessings that we really receive as Christians especially for those of us who are still here. That's a great blessing. And, and honestly, it gives you something to say as you're doing the handshake line at a funeral, especially if you know that the, the, the deceased is a, was a Christian, is to be able to say to them, you know, hey, I know you're grieving, my friend, but, but there's hope. And we, we take solace in that hope. Yeah. And that, is, that's, that is a wonderful thing. In fact, it's possibly one of the best things to be able to have that perspective. All right, but you know what? That's verse 13. So now we, we continue on here, and, and Paul gives us some, some specific end times teaching. Professor D, in verses 14 to 17, will you unpack this teaching for us? Well, I'll try to anyways, but here goes. 
Perhaps the big reveal here is that those who die before Jesus' second coming will join him before those who, who are still alive. Uh, Paul will develop this more in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 50 to 54. But continuing with, with things revealed here in this letter, we also get the revelation of the drumroll, the rapture. And then the rapture, we read it, we just didn't catch the word, but it's that phrase caught up. For, and for the first century, and for the first and only time in scripture, this appears here, the word rapture, what we understand as rapture. Yeah, it's a Latin word uh, from the word rapio, I believe. So it's, it's, I think it's translated rapturas. And so it's, we're, we're getting, the rapture is not a Greek concept, but we get it from a Latin translation of that word. So that is, so if you ever hear what, or we get this term rapture. Rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it is, but it's just in, in the Latin Bible. So that's where we get the word for rapture. And I think this also highlights the idea of progressive uh, revelation from God. You know, the Bible, especially since this is still a time where it's being written and it's not completed yet, God is progressively revealing everything. I always like to tell people that God is playing with the winning hand, but he plays with his hands very close to his chest. All we know is that he has the winning hand. We just don't know what it is exactly. I like how you put that. So, Mick, just, just, just for our listeners' sake, Paul gives us here an essentially a timeline, like what's going to happen and to who. Would you just give us that basic timeline in terms sure. of I'll, I'll start it around when Christ comes back and those yeah. who are dead. And help us understand one last time the basic idea here of the timeline. Okay, well, based on what is revealed here at this particular point in, in, the, in this Thessalonian letter, he'll review more in the next letter, but both in this letter and in the wider sense of Pauline theology, the only real thing revealed here is the order of resurrection. And I want to be clear, because I, I don't want to be putting in what are some of the things I've learned and my ideas. I'm trying to pretend like I'm a first-time reader here, and this is what he's talking about here. He's talking about the order of the resurrection and and it relates to Jesus' the second coming. More will be revealed in the following chapter by the time we get to, to chapter 5, verse 9. So I don't want to get too ahead of myself with what is actually revealed here in the timeline. At this point, what we know is Jesus is coming back, and there will be a resurrection. The dead will rise first, and those who are alive are going to be instantaneously changed. But we're not given a whole lot more to go other than that. Right. So he says in verse 18 that be encouraged or encourage one another why would this have encouraged them like what 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 is communicated here that would specifically be an encouragement well as we saw earlier in this letter in the previous section they were under persecution um that plus i also believe that the first generation of of, of believers honestly believed that jesus re would return in their lifetime if i was in their shoes i probably would have thought the same thing based on on what was being taught and written at the time the Holy Spirit had yet to reveal that there was going to be a divine pause button uh, concerning the Daniel prophecy of the 70 weeks. And that's something that I think that, that that's just a big thing to unpack. But, but think about it from a logical human perspective. It would stand to reason that the 70th week would take place immediately after the 69th week, um, which was when Jesus saw a triumphal entry in his crucifixion. Uh, but, but no one took into account God's plan for, for what would be the church. Um, which, which is on a different track than, than his plan for the nation of Israel, for whom the, the 70 weeks really hunkers down, it's really geared towards. So yes, 
both them and even us, we can be encouraged in the certainty of the imminent return of Jesus. If Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies regarding his first coming, and mind you, that, that involves suffering and dying on a cross. And if he fulfilled all of that, you know, you know, and this is validated by his own personal resurrection, you better believe that the second coming where he gets to, 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 be, to, to come like full on victorious mm. and, and, and take what he, he won, you better believe that the second time, the second coming is even a more, a greater certainty than his first coming was. Our salvation and resurrection all hinges on his. Right. Yeah, I, I, I've, been, I've been pondering verse 14 and why they might have had, had issues, especially, especially those who, you know, the, those of Paul's audience who, who come from a Jewish background and which, which probably was the majority of them. But for those who are coming from a Jewish background, I wonder why they would struggle with this. Well, I think in this particular congregation, from just some of the things that I've seen, it is predominantly Gentile by far compared to some of the other churches. Okay. Because if you notice, he really doesn't go into any discussions about circumcision. There's almost a complete absence to that. Right, right, right. I, 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 fair point. I, I wonder about you know talking about your your countrymen uh, from from the previous section in regards to Judea mm -hmm. uh, and the anti-Semitism there. I wonder about that, but it, the the gospel has Jewish roots, and so I want I wonder about verse fourteen why they would struggle and and Judaism. Judaism seems to believe in one resurrection mm -hmm. that. You know, even when uh, Jesus in the Lazarus story, Jesus talking to Martha, you know, OK, I, yeah, I believe in this resurrection on the last day kind of thing. OK. And so there's this idea in Judaism. And so this might be something that Paul would have held to. Mm -hmm. And that there's only going to be one resurrection at the final time. And so and that's it. And so and yet Jesus resurrected and not every saint resurrected with him yeah i know that the, the gospels present that the tombs are emptied a bit okay but but not everyone resurrected the same way jesus resurrected and so jesus resurrected and that was one resurrection and then that wasn't the final resurrection and so now they're in this kind of a this bubble of this this already and not yet tension yeah. and so i wonder if any of them might have struggled in this belief of a final resurrection because paul mentions here jesus died and he rose again so excuse me paul was very quick in like a first corinthians 15 to remind them no 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 jesus is the first fruits of that final resurrection mm -hmm. it's like that resurrection that we look forward to is that he is the first fruits of that and so it's it's almost like paul is clarifying here in this letter to the thessalonians that this final resurrection is fulfilled not in one as the, as the, the the common jewish mindset would say but in two in two resurrections, it's the initial fulfillment in Jesus, and because of that, we get a final resurrection fulfillment in that day that Paul's speaking of in this rapture paragraph. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. In fact, I would I would even go back to something that I commonly use in in relation to this. When, when you look at the Isaiah prophecy that Jesus reads in the synagogue for the first time, he talks about the day, the the year of the Lord, and the day of God's vengeance. Mm. When you're reading it, you just kind of read it nonstop. But we're not the commentators on that. Jesus is the commentator. So when Jesus reads it, he puts a stop there. He doesn't continue with, with that progression. And it's very similar to with the, with the resurrection as well. 
what we understood, what the Jews of that time, first century Palestine understood, they understood, because again, this was something that the Holy Spirit, again, God playing with the cards close to his chest, didn't make his winning hand shown. Mm. And this is why the enemy took the bait hook, line, and sinker about Jesus' resurrection, and he thought he had that victory on Calvary, not realizing that that was God's plan all along. Amen, amen. Continuing the, our end times work here, we transitioned to, to chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, and he's going to speak of the day of the Lord here. And so we'll start with just verses 1 to 3. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So Professor D, what's the basic message to the believers here? Essentially, we have nothing to worry about and, and we have all that we need in God, his spirit in us and his revealed word. Um, we are to live on the other hand in anticipation and expectation of Jesus' return, period. Is there a hidden message to people who aren't believers here? Are, are they pictured in this? Well, yeah, I wouldn't say it's so hidden. I think it's there pretty blatantly. But the unbelievers, on the other hand, they're going to be lulled into a false sense of security. And then it's all going to happen. It's all going to go south really fast. Um, it's like an, an expected mother. It's never a question of if, but when. Right. So it, it's, uh, so someone who is not reading this is going, well, gosh, you know, that's that's what... I mean, a, a Christian, a non-Christian person would kind of look at the end times and say, oh, what's Armageddon going to be like? They'll, they'll use those kind of words. Mm -hmm. and, and like, oh, well, you know what? Here, here's the first thing. I liked how you used the word imminent last time. The, mm. the return of Christ is imminent in that it is next. Yeah. It, it is the next thing on God's calendar is Jesus coming back. Okay, so, uh, yeah, it's, there's something here for the Christian and something here for the non-Christian. If nothing else, it's an either or. And you've got, you're either going to be waiting for Christ like this, or you're going to be waiting like that. And mm -hmm. if you're a Christian, this isn't a surprise. Yeah, it might be sudden. You're not expecting it that morning or whatnot, but but it's not like it's completely out of the blue. And for the non-Christian, it's going to be completely out of the blue. Like you said, going downhill quickly. All right, so four to seven here, but you are, and he's going to use, he's almost going to sound like the Apostle John here. He's going to be using big, big, con okay, so so we're really going to be dependent upon you, Professor D, to help us with these big, like big paintbrush style concepts he's going to give. It. All right. So, but you are not in darkness, brother, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. So let us, th so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Okay, so how does Paul use darkness and light to illustrate this? This is verses four and five. Well, you, you beat me to it, but for a moment, I thought we were in First John um, <laughs> with all right. that light and dark metaphors. So right? yeah, Paul, Paul uses the various simple contrasts to differentiate the Christian from the non-Christian. In the Greco-Roman culture, I think this is important to understand, the context in which the New Testament was written in, the, the metaphor for further highlights knowing truth versus not knowing it, the idea of being enlightened, and, and that's just it. Christians are in the know of the truth of God and of end times, and the non-Christians are not. We have night, we have light, we have darkness, 
and the darkness and light. And then we have, he uses sleep and awake. So he, he then brings application using the term sleep and awake. So we've had light and darkness. So how, how, do, how does he use sleeping and awake here? So here he uses sleep, not as the aphemism, uh, aphemism, uh, euphemism of death early as he did earlier, but of being, this of being alert and aware. So we as Christians, we, we are awake in this sense. And again, this is the idea of being enlightened the, uh, in, 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 the, in the truth and on alert. He goes on uh, far, he goes as far as to say that the Christians are also sober to kind of continue the, 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 the parallel and, or the contrast and that the world is drunk. Mm. Yeah, that's very simple explanations there. Thank you, Professor D, because otherwise we read this, even I, as I was reading, I was getting tripped up a couple of times, a lot of big images there. And so, yeah, so we continue now with 8 to 11, and we're in chapter 5. All right, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. All right, well, he is concluding this section now with two more images, this image of sobriety. So what's he saying there in verse 8? So again, this is Paul using simple contrast to highlight that Christians have the truth and the world doesn't. We have faith and love as our breastplate, which means that we are protected in the ultimate sense. Uh, we also have the hope of salvation. Mm. All right. A amen. And there's, there's a wonderful, wonderful hope. And speaking of that hope, verses 9 and 10, talk about that. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, uh, so Paul builds on the hope that, that he expressed in verse 8 by, by telling us that God has spared us from wrath. That is his coming judgment that in Jesus, he has prepared us and he set us aside for salvation. Uh, so whether we, we die before Jesus returns or are alive, God's already got us covered. And as Christians, whether we live or die, whatever we do, we do it unto the Lord. As Paul will go on to develop in a major way in Galatians 2.20, Romans 14.8, and Philippians 1.21. Mm. he concludes this section by saying encourage one another and build one another up and just as you are doing so why would this once again how would this have encouraged them yeah so pretty much this is the same way as, as, as in the earlier section it all hinges on the certainty of jesus's resurrection because that is the certainty that is the foundation for the certainty of our salvation this is why we need to remember that jesus is coming back mm. amen Amen. Amen. Our next section, uh, I, I invite the listener to think um, directionally or to maybe think positionally because he's going to be speaking about people around you and that kind of stuff. And so I, I, the way the what stood out to my mind as I was thinking about this is to think positionally. Mm -hmm. And so it'll all make sense. And Professor D is going to play ball with this as I ask the questions. So as as I read, let's read 15. Here we go. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. 
And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Am I going to, yeah, just 12 to 15, excuse me. But always seek to, to do good to one another and to everyone. Okay, so I've got here um, those who are above you, those who are next to you, those who are behind you, and those who are against you. So first of all, those who are above you, this would be 12 to 13 A's. So I'll just read, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord to admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So those, of, uh, those who are above us, how does Paul direct us regarding them? So this has to do with leaders in the church. Paul's going to develop this more in letters like Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, to, just to name one. But while all Christian service and, and, and servants are important, you know, when, I mean, we, 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 you know, the guy who cleans the, the church is, is, is as important as, as the guy who teaches. There's always going to be a need for order. I'll, I'll even liken it to a husband and a wife. The husband and wife are equal in dignity, but one has to, one has to take the lead role. One has to be the lead role in, in the marriage and in the family. Yeah. That's all it is. God does the same thing in the Godhead. And in the church, he's doing the same thing. There always needs to be order and, and edification that comes from leadership. So those particular offices that, that God has, has appointed for them. And, and where leaders are instructed not to lord it over others, here, what Paul is emphasizing is us respecting the leaders who are over us, though. Amen. And then he then he talks about briefly as verse 13 closes, be at peace among yourselves. So not only Paul directs you regarding those who are above you, but now those who are next to you. So so how does he tell us about that? What's this peace? What, what would this look like? Well, peace, you can substitute the word peace for reconciliation and, and, and unity and harmony. And, and so he's telling us to be at peace with, with each other, to be in unity and harmony with each other as we're reconciled with God. We also need to be reconciled with one another. Amen. And then in verse 14, he's urging them to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. It gives us the idea of, of not only you're, you're dealing with those who are above you, those who are next to you, but maybe there's some people who are behind you. Maybe yeah. they're, they're, they're struggling in a way that you're not struggling. So they're kind of you know, in, in your rearview mirror, as it were. What does yeah. Paul say about them? So Regarding them, rather. Yeah, so what, what Paul is saying is that we who are mature in the faith, because here's the thing, all Christians are matter to God the same, but the, the reality is that some Christians have been on the journey longer than others, so some should be more mature than others, and, and, and that's fine. There were people who are ahead of me, there are people who are behind me, and in the same way, you know, we who are mature in the faith, we have a responsibility to, to properly challenge those who are not doing what they're supposed to, and to encourage those who need it when they need it. In all cases, and this is the one thing that Paul kind of convicts this with, in all cases, we need to exercise patience. This is good. So we, we, we've got direction now for those who are above us, those who are next to us, those who are behind us. But now we have some people that are against us. Are, at least the Thessalonians had some people who are against them. And in verse, in verse 15, what, is, what does Paul give to them about those who are against them? Yeah, so as far as those who are against them, what we need to do is we just need to hand them over to Satan. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, that's a different <laughs> matter from 1 Corinthians uh, um, that I'm getting ahead there. Uh, I just no, about we are, a take with my yeah. coffee there. I, I was taking a drink of coffee. <laughs> no, what we are is we're instructed to never retaliate. 
because mm. that's the idea of not paying evil with evil. So we, we don't retaliate. And instead, as our, as our pastor Scott likes to say, and even to the point where I kind of like grumble when he says it, but he's right. Kill them with kindness. Always do good. Always do the right thing. Mm. Amen. So what, what little section there dealing with those who are above you or next to you or behind you and against you. And now we come to a, 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 a famous section that it, it comes, it comes up um, in, in biblical counseling a lot Verse 16 to 22 rejoice, always pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this, is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. By the way, if you're a memorizer of scripture, those are three easy ones to memorize. Memorize those. Okay. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. So, Professor D, uh, what do we learn? Uh, verses 6 to 18 kind of give marching orders for the inner person as the Christian. So, what what... How does that describe that? What what inner marching orders are we getting here? I like to think of it as this is what we should be um, we should be looking for. So we are to be joyful. We need to be persistent in prayer. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. Obviously, it doesn't mean literally that because we got to stop to eat and sleep and and, and do other things as well. You know, um, so it's the idea of being persistent in prayer. You know. Um, we, we are to be grateful always and even, and maybe dare I say, especially when we're going through hardships, these are all areas that, that the only way you're going to grow in these areas is by living in, in, in them, you know, as we, as we live them out one day at a time. And, and this requires intentionality. Right. Yeah. I, I see good counsel here for the, for the one who suffers from anxiety We've already learned that in Philippians 4. It's, you know, not to be anxious about anything, but in everything to pray. Okay, so there's praying always and rejoicing always and praying always. And then for the one who's suffering with depression, um, gratefulness is great for depression. Mm -hmm. It's not focusing on what you don't have or not focusing on how bad your situation is or what you're going through, whatever stories you're telling yourself. But instead, and this is great for our friends in recovery as well, having a nightly inventory, a, a gratefulness list. You know, to be able to say, God, I'm grateful for these 10 things and to write them down before bed. It can be great things. Being yeah. giving thanks in all circumstances. I'm very thankful, God, to take the focus off the self and put it onto God is wonderful for both anxiety and depression. All right. But then he gets spiritual here, doesn't he? So in verses 19 to 22, he brings up the Holy Spirit and spiritual matters. What, what in the world's going on here, Mick? So the spirit is the person who leads in our lives. The one whom we interact with more directly is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is representing Jesus in our lives. The Holy Spirit is right there when we pray to God the Father. So the Holy, the Holy Spirit is the one who's leading us in our everyday life. To quench the Spirit is essentially not to follow his lead. When the Holy Spirit prompts you, hey, um, open the book. Are we opening the book? That's the Holy Spirit leading. You're not going to the book. You're not going to God in prayer is you quenching the Holy Spirit. You're not going to church is you quenching the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is leading you to do these things. OK, um, but we, and as he says that we are to take prophecies and scripture on a whole seriously. And again, especially in their time, prophecies were still going on in a, in a different way than they are now. But we we still have the written prophecies that, that are still in, in effect today. 
So we still have to take all that serious. That's why we study things like end times. You know, we need to be discerning. Or as First as John chapter 4 puts it, we need to test the spirits. And, and we must always, always watch out against evil. We can't let our guard down. Right. So theologically speaking, listener, if you are someone who believes that that prophecies still exist today in the same manner and function they existed in the first century, then these verses mean a lot to you because you're now taking in these new prophecies, the new prophetic utterances. And so, but even then you got to test them. And, and, and I, I would encourage you if you fall into that camp and largely our more charismatic brothers and sisters, that's, that's their position. And so even then, any new utterance or whatnot needs to be put through the, the filter of, of existing scripture. But for those of us, and I, this is the position I hold, that, that the Holy Spirit doesn't work that way anymore in terms of giving prophetic utterances like he did back then, because the canon is closed. There is no new scripture. The apostles are not around anymore. And so we're not having prophecy in the same way today as we did back then. We look at this just like Professor D said the existing prophecies of scripture that we do have. And I so would even any go as new far, oh, go ahead, sorry. But no, please go for it. I would even go as far as saying there is no new prophecy. What there is is renewed understanding on our part, because what happens is mm. the Holy Spirit opens our understanding to something that he has already revealed. There is no new revelation. What, what is new is our understanding of the existing revelation. That can be new. We mistakenly word it as new revelation, but it is not new revelation. It is basically God's illumination. In other words, he opens our understanding to things, kind of like um, the last chapter of Luke, where it talks that Jesus was explaining everything in the Old Testament that pointed to him. Mm. It wasn't a new revelation in, in, in the sense that Jesus was revealing anything new at that point, but he was actually showing them how it was there all along, and yet their understanding was renewed at that moment. Wonderful. And, and there may be there may be people who are like you and me, Mick, and that we that they're in that second camp that believes okay the, the new prophecies have ceased. Uh, we're very, very wary anytime any preacher says I've got something brand new for you today, and there's no there's no never anything new. The Bible is not new. It may be new to your ears, but it's it's not it's not new. So for for those of us in that camp, and that would be a, more of like a cessationist, where like as the whole those miraculous workings that existed in the first century, those gifts, those abilities, that they have ceased as a normal function of the church. Not that God doesn't do miracles anymore or anything like that. No, but as a normal function of the church, that has ceased. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you're reading God's word and you're feeling that you're feeling the stirring within you to now make big decisions and make the so I think that applies for us now. You are as you are wanting to apply God's word in your life. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from the evil. Yeah. So if this, if, if this is leading you in a good direction, that probably is biblical counsel. If it's leading you to honor God, most likely it's biblical counsel that you're applying in your life. If it's leading you to excuse your sin or anything like that, my goodness, abstain from that evil. This is the Holy Spirit works to draw you closer to Jesus, not to draw you closer to yourself. And so we have to be very, very conscious of that. That's a way to apply these verses to you today, even if you don't believe prophecy exists anymore. We still have the prophetic word of God in our laps or on our phones. It's right there. And to, but how we apply it. I love how Mick talked about that, how it, it can be fresh and new in our understanding and our application. But even though it's fresh and new, 
it must hold fast to what is good and abstain from evil. And that is, we cannot get past that. These verses speak directly to that. So, so Professor D, Paul lands the plane in 23 and 28 to 23 to 28. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thus ends 1 Thessalonians. So, Professor D, how does Paul conclude the letter? Well, he concludes this letter with a period. No, um, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> he ends with, with, with the benediction of God's peace sanctifying us completely as we live in anticipation of Jesus' return. And, and he also assures us, a la, a la Philippians 1.6, which most of us are, are familiar with, that God who began the good work in, in, in us all, all will see it through all the way through. And, and this is very encouraging stuff here. Right. I've, I've, got, I've got a friend who, who just turned 80, and he and I would tell, us, tell ourselves these things sometimes. We would say, you know what? He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And we just, that's a great self-talk. Great thing to tell yourself. You know what, God, you've got this. And you know what, you're going you're gonna to come through. You're going to do it. You're going to take care of your business. And what a great ending here. And is there anything else that just stands out about what, what maybe the holy kiss or what's going on? I mean, I, you know we had to bring it up. It's right there. Is there anything else about, about these final verses that you want to comment on? Well, besides the, the holy kiss business, <laughs> what stood out to me was Paul putting the Thessalonians under oath to have the letter read to all brothers, which, you know, the, a great point that you always like to emphasize, and I love that the fact that you do, is that scripture wasn't written to us, but it has been preserved for us. And right there, you're getting it there in black and white, uh, which I believe this means that when he's talking about the brothers, he's not just meaning the Thessalonians because he's already addressing them, but I think he, he means all the churches and, dare I say, because they didn't realize it at the time, of all times till Jesus actually comes back. Mm. Oh, I like that. You, you kind of get historical with that and, and, and futurist. Yeah. Well, what we always do, listeners for, who are used to Professor D and Big Rev and Masterclass Theology, you know when we come to an end of a book, we do two things. We always give you our closing thoughts regarding this particular lesson. Usually we say regarding this chapter, but with Thessalonians, we've been taking multiple chapters. So we'll just say, uh, the, the closing thoughts regarding this lesson, and then you know we're going to give you closing thoughts regarding the whole book as a whole of First Thessalonians. So, Professor D, we'll start with just this lesson. What are your closing thoughts about First uh, Thessalonians chapter four and five? Well, I'm going to begin with that patron saint who once said, "You know, life can be long, and you've got to be so strong." Uh, mm -hmm. John Lennon. Um, life is long, and and, and it is hard. We need encouragement. What we think things should be is not always the way things actually are. The first Christians genuinely believed, the first generation of Christians genuinely believed that Jesus was, was, was around the corner, that his coming was really going to happen. And you get that sense of urgency when you read the New Testament. Hmm. They didn't doubt the reality of his resurrection, but that kept them going. You know, that's why they, 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 they put up with the persecution that they were facing from their neighbors. But we, but we need to be reminded that as certain as Jesus' first coming was, 
His second coming makes even more sense in light of that very first coming and his resurrection. And, and this should incentivize us to always lead a life worthy of the calling. Amen. Well, how I, how I land the plane regarding a closing thought for just this section is I want to focus on, uh, in chapter four, this, this, this idea of grieving without hope and that, that, that we as Christians grieve with hope. It's one of the, it, like, I, like I mentioned in, in our lesson, that's when I don't know what to say as I'm walking through that line, shaking hands with, with, the, with the grieving family. Uh, sometimes I'm doing. Sometimes I'm doing the the funeral service, and I'll always bring this up. We grieve with hope, especially if, if the one who died uh, was someone who died in Christ or a Christian. And so the Christian funeral has a lot of hope. When the Christian, when the funeral doesn't have any hope, and and the the, the ones who are mourning are wondering where their loved one is, I like to remind them, you know, God God, God handles his business, and you know we're we're, we're worried. We focus on that. But my goodness, this is something that means a lot to me. Uh, my wife and I have had to bury or had to say goodbye to three of our five children. They all died as babies or one was a, a very early miscarriage. And so the scripture doesn't exactly, it's not overt about it, but it's, I have hope because of the gospel. I have hope that I will see those young, those babies again. I don't know when I get to heaven, if they're going to be babies. Um, I have no idea, but fact that I'm able to grieve, but still grieve with hope, that when I see my little baby Esther, and I see the, the, the little miscarried baby, we didn't even know the gender of, we named her Lily, and watched Lily be a boy and be waiting for me, I don't know, but, and then uh, my, my daughter's twin sister who died, you know, midway through the pregnancy, it's like, we're gonna, I'm gonna see those three again, and their first words, though I never got to hear them cry, though I never got to, to hear them speak to me, their first words are going to be, hi, daddy, here's Jesus. We grieve, but we grieve with a hope. That's the one thing we have as Christians. The one thing we have regarding this ending. And so to remind ourselves, grandma might be dead. The loved ones you have may already have died. But they're, as, they're, they're with Jesus right now. And, and, and what we're going to understand is that when Christ comes back, they're not going to be left behind. They're not going to be shortchanged. There's a hope for them, too. We're going to see them again. We grieve, and that grief hurts, and that grief is hard, but we have hope. And that hope, as, 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 as the author says in Hebrews, is an anchor for our soul. Amen. And we get that basic principle of hope in the midst of grief in chapter four. And what a wonderful reminder we have that we can carry with us. Professor D, sorry, I got a little bit emotional there, but how do we land the plane? What are your closing thoughts for the entire book of First Thessalonians? Well, before I go there, man, that was a powerful share. And I thank you for, for being vulnerable like that. I mean, I, we need to hear stuff like that. You know, a lot of times people think that just because you're, you're a pastor that somehow you're immune to this stuff and you're not. You know, and, and that's that's awesome. And, I, and I, that was just a beautiful, you know, reminder of things, you know, um, you kind of in this in a sense, my my grandmother never met Elda. And yet the year she died is the year that I met Elda. Wow. So there's always like an opportunity one day when we're all in heaven. I'm going to say, Grandma, meet Elda. She always I was her favorite grandchild. So this is going to be very meaningful for her. How would you say that in Spanish? Is that te presento? 
Well, I'm hoping that by that time she's gonna know English because in heaven we're gonna know <laughs> Well, we'll see. Uh, but as far as closing thoughts to the book, I think it's easy to focus on the stuff that, that focuses on the second coming and the rapture, the end time stuff. And some have even called uh, first and second Thessalonians eschatological epistles. How's that for a $5 million word? Ooh. And there is this eschatology and at that. And eschatology, by the way, means end times for those who may not be familiar with the term. And But there's definitely more than, than that in this than, than in than in his other epistles, the end time stuff. But but if you really pay attention at heart, these are really as much ecclesiastical epistles as, as any of the other ones that we've covered in this series. Mm. I mean, sure, he talks about end times, but but, but you but, but we gleaned this, especially last week, but even really here too. Paul's pastoral care extends beyond the discussions of the second coming. Mm. We saw that, that Paul, we saw Paul both as a mother and father in chapter two. And I think that, that that's a template for us today. Yeah, be aware and be assured of the second coming. Know about it, but don't be obsessed about it to the point that you're not living in the now, the Christian yeah. life that you're supposed to be living in the now. That's what he's telling the Thessalonians. Amen. So, so you know, live in the, in the now, being faithful in a hostile culture and watching out against false teachings. And I think that that's the bigger takeaway. When I look at First and Second Thessalonians, I no longer see them as eschatological epistles, but as ecclesiastical epistles that happen to talk about eschatology. Beautiful. Yeah, if, if, we, were, if we were playing theological blackjack, I'd be doubling down right now because my, 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 my closing thought is going to be this, along the same lines because there are so many people who make it almost as if it is a, a test of fellowship your rapture position because mm -hmm. it's hard to deny the rapture exists in scripture. It's hard to, you can't, you can't ignore first, first Thessalonians chapter four, but then what do you do with it? The three options are, is it going to be a pre-tribulation rapture, a mid-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture? And honestly, you can use the Bible to justify all three of those. And there, there are plenty of people out there that are more end timesy and are eschatological in their, in their theology and they remind you of that at all times. But hey, I'm a premillennial, pre-trib, here's who I am, whatever they say. They go all, they go all the, the, no, I don't think that's the point of the rapture. So, so in that case, if the rapture can be overdone, the rapture clearly is overdone. And so it's a great reminder to the Thessalonians. It's a great reminder for us. But this is not what we're pushing all of our chips in. And so with that in mind, I love verse 6. Of, of chapter five, I think it, to, to double down on, on what on what Professor D was telling us. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Just a great reminder. It's the same thing I tell people at a funeral when I do the service. Hey, I know we're grieving the loved one, but guess what? You're still here. And so there's things you've got to know. There's things that you've got to, how you've got to be and what you've got to do. It's almost like Paul is reminding them, hey, when Christ comes, don't be morally and ethically caught off guard. It's like, what will you be doing when Christ comes? I mean, it's like there's things in your life you need to focus on now. There's things that need to stop. There's things that need to start. I mean, start, I'm going to slip on the counselor hat again, but I've got people in my my life who was like, well, I don't have to worry. About all, you know, I've got all eternity. No, no, you, you were being sanctified. And Paul reminds us again and again of that sanctification. So don't be ethically caught off guard. How you live this life right now matters. And if there's things, if there's fruit on your tree from a Galatians sense that shouldn't be there, repent. And if there's not fruit that should be there, 
pray. It's like, this is our opportunity to live this life. There is no cosmic do-over. How we live matters. And it's not to quote Gladiator, I guess, but it will echo in eternity. It's like, here we are. He's reminding the Thessalonians that live sober now. And, and sobriety, I guess, could have a literal sense, but it could also, uh, it also could play with the regards to your life. Is your life, if you were to paint with a big paintbrush of your life, what would it describe? What picture would be painted? Are you seeing any change at all in your hurts, or your habits, your hangups? Maybe you need to get to celebrate recovery. Maybe you need a journey with a trusted older brother or sister to, to, to sharpen that iron there. Yes, you've got to take advantage of this time we have right now to grow in godliness. Jesus is expecting you to live a certain way now. And we can't just look at eternity. No, we can focus on eternity. Sure, it's our perspective. But we have to live sober lives in the light right now. So that's how I land the plane, Professor D. What a great time today in, in First Thessalonians 4 and 5. What a wonderful conversation. As always, this, is, this has been Masterclass Theology. Next week, next session, we will launch into the wonderful conclusion of our summer series in 2 Thessalonians. This is the Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev. And I am Professor D. God bless you and have a great day. Amen. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.